Hey, guess what? It's the Week in Sports Cars and your listener Q&A show. Why do we make that little clarification? Because it's all we do, actually, with the Week in Sports Cars, Graham Goodwin. We just had a race. 24 hours of racing. 24 hours of broadcast excellence. Nothing critical to say whatsoever. Uh, Hey, I'm Marshall Pruitt. That is Gigi, the man who has a dog named Oscar, who we love, that has his own Twitter account. My cats, Rocky and Rosie, who are sleeping next to me, they don't, but my wife tells me they should. This show, it's truly powered by you, the questions you send in each week. We say super thanks to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com that make this show possible as well. Graham, we need to throw out a couple of quick things before we dive into nearly 6,000 words worth of questions so this deserves a thank you, right? This oh, episode yeah. we're about to record, we have never had as many questions submitted as we have right now. More than 100 questions, most of them centered on the Rolex 24 Daytona Graham. I, I mean, I wish we could get to them all. It takes about an hour per thousand, and yep. we are not doing the six hours of Pruitt and Goodwin's incompetence uh endurance race so we're going to do about an hour and a half or so which is what we try and limit ourselves to and if there's enough good stuff left over maybe we'll try and capture part two later this week how does that sound my friend that sounds great i should tell you by the way by no not all of those 106 are from daniel summerskill which is i think another step forward um does seem to me and if you're listening let us know via Twitter or via the Facebook page when uh, the question call goes out. Every week we seem to be picking up people who are saying first time questioner. We love to see that. Uh, we'd love to see the guys that have been with us throughout uh, the uh, weekend sports cars, which I should remember, uh, remind you, Marshall is celebrating its third anniversary, our leather anniversary. Leather. And it, it, Oh, I'm wearing oh, I'm wearing Jesus. full leather in, uh, in in tribute to that. It's quite warm in here. Uh yeah. Well, we'll leave it to Graham to wear. Uh, we'll just call him backless chaps right now from his days as a male stripper um, in leather. I wasn't aware that third anniversary was leather. Um, this was. is troubling. <laughs> Mate, you missed that one, didn't you? <laughs> uh, thankfully, so yes, we. Uh, we decided to start doing this show. I don't remember if it was in the hours Rolex. leading up to the finish of the Rolex 24 yeah, in 2018. The convers- yeah. The, conversa- the conversation happened after the checkered flag. Um, I can recall having had the world's least successful interview with Chip Ganassi and uh, coming back to the desk and we we had, a, had the conversation there and then. Three years it was. What a three years in so very many ways, good, bad, uh, in all sorts of fronts. But my God, this has been fun. And it continues uh, to be a highlight for my week. Thanks very much uh, for your perseverance with this, uh, MP, through what's been an astonishing uh, time, I know, in your life. And uh, all I could tell you is 6,000 words worth of questions, well well over 100 uh, questions this week. It very clearly has established itself as well, one of the kind of markers in the weekly diary for the diehard sports car fans of the world. And, and thank you for joining us on this journey, guys and girls. 
Absolutely. And last little note to add there, my week in IndyCar show. So of the weekly shows that I do, we have the week in sports cars, listener Q&A format, week in IndyCar, listener Q&A format, week in IndyCar guest format. The guest shows tend to be the highest traffic generator among the three. Sometimes the listener Q&A in the IndyCar side is the highest traffic generator. Looking at the numbers and things I don't fully understand because I only get worse with time, so it must be you, <laughs> is our weekend sports car show, brother, is seriously gaining. And it would not surprise mm-hmm. me if before some point in time this year, it's actually our top weekly performer. So 100% because of y'all, the listeners. Is that pandering? Possibly. That's eh, also true. We do appreciate you, and we only get to do this because you send in insane amounts of stuff some of them some of the questions we even understand so we do uh can i have one more thing one more thing to add but of course because it's your unless you think we are just sitting here waiting for the questions to roll in and and just continuing on this track trust me there is stuff going on in the background we are desperate to get back to racing where we can see you the fans uh standing trackside and watching we're both desperate to get to the point where time an opportunity allows us to go back and do the format that I think we both enjoy the most, which is the live shows. And uh, more on that when we get back to racing where we can have live uh, fans trackside uh, reliably and that we can interact with you because plans are afoot to take a big step forward with weekend sports cars as we move forward through 21 and into 22 and 23. Big nose blast. So there we go. Uh, Oh, sorry. No, it's all good. Why don't you, before we get rolling, since you are the official Mm -hmm. category selector, why don't you run through the categories that have been fashioned by our, I don't want to call him our main man, Eh, man, Ryan Kish, who we're going to subject you to again in the show here shortly. He wants to gloat. We're going to stomp him down badly. But why don't you tell folks the categories we have, because some of them are kind of fun. Uh, Yeah, what we've got is some questions about Corvette racing. They obviously brought home a third one, too, um, at the Rolex 24 Hours. And also there was a COVID-related story there, of course. What it is, it's been a page and a half with the questions here on LMP3 slash the greatest prediction ever. I think we beg to differ, but uh, but we'll come back to that one. Uh, NBC broadcast the Chase Elliott show. That will be featuring here. <laughs> GTD Pro. Yes, indeed. GTD Pro. You'll have to explain that in more detail because I wasn't watching NBC. Uh, and, of course, that was the big announcement coming into uh, the Rolex 24 Hours. And then we've got a whole range of other stuff that we're probably going to be doing a bit of a lucky dip with there are dozens and dozens and dozens of questions here uh and if we possibly can make it back to a show maybe on thursday before i head off to the airport the following day to head to uh the gulf region um then we will do that but for the moment i think what we're going to do is head straight into the big talking topics post rolex 24 uh we're not going to get into the Aslam's echo stuff for the moment there's just frankly too much to wash up with uh, daytona related shenanigans so do you want me to kick off and start flinging questions at you well we'll do dual flinging and that this is <laughs> this is a family show so i'm not going to define that uh you tell us where we're starting brother 
Uh, we're going to start with Corvette, and as we say, it was a pretty dominant run uh, to a 1 2 finish. Third 1 2 in the history of the race uh, from Corvette, one of which, of course, was 1 2 overall for the initial Corvette racing effort. And we've got three major questions here from James Betha, uh, from Matt Anderson, and Ricky Zagata. Uh, James says, Would Corvette rate, uh, racing have been penalised for driver time infringement if Antonio Garcia? Uh, to mention here, this is uh, also talking about the fact that I think about the 17, 18 hour mark, yeah. uh, that three driver crew became two uh, with Antonio Garcia being withdrawn from the squad, having provided a positive uh, COVID-19 PCR test in preparation for leaving the United States. He tested positive, uh, sorry, negative on the way in, but then a positive later. So uh, James asking, would they have been penalized for driver time if he hadn't reached his requirement before being asked to leave the facility? Um, he says, also shout out to all the LMP3s that finished the race. Hashtag pay up Pruitt. Hashtag Pru Day. I don't understand that. Well, well, I'm sure we'll get to that in a uh, cruel way later. Um, <laughs> Matt Anderson says, with Antonio Garcia being sidelined halfway through the race due to a positive test, how does this work going forward with regards to drive times? Same basic point there. Uh, and Ricky Zagata said... Um, why wasn't the entry pulled from the race? First thing we should say here, um, uh, before you get into kind of your views on this one, I think there's two things I'd like to say. One is, and it, th- these questions, by the way, don't drop into that, but I did see some of this. I'm not going to accept any COVID shaming in any circumstances other than total asshattery. And there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Antonio was guilty of anything other than just being unlucky. So that's the first thing. Anybody out there on social media, come out with that bullshit and you're going to be you're going to be called out for it. The second thing is, Antonio, stay well, my friend. You're awesome. Uh, you've been a highlight through uh, GT racing for God knows how long now. And just hope that this is uh, a positive test that ends up to be a negative test. Or if it does turn out to be positive, uh, that your journey through this virus uh, doesn't put you in too much discomfort. Whatever else goes on here, whatever else the answer to these questions are, we're not going to play the game of it's his fault he's positive. Yeah, and I think the <clears throat> the folks searching for drama noted that believe first instance of the fact that Antonio had uh, found COVID in December was done by social media. I think he posted something there in his native Spanish that then became part of uh, an official interview distributed by Corvette racing. And I think IMSA as well think the, whatever might've been implied was that, Oh, well this guy was already, you know, compromised and tried to squeak his way in and cheat his way in or the team did something again, all nonsense. So yeah, I'm with you, Graham. Um, but anyways, we live in a world where that kind of stuff is, uh, highly prized in terms of, um, digestible nonsense of what I know with this being a rather exceptional thing in terms of having to remove someone from a car mid competition after proving to be positive for COVID. I don't know if I can think of any other instance over the past year of that happening anywhere. If it has, again, just my ignorance, I would have to take a closer look at the rules. Uh, James, in terms of the drive time, I know that 
We've seen scenarios where drivers have gotten sick in the car, whether it's food poisoning or whatever else, and have had to get out. Don't know if I'm recalling modern era, you know, kind of the driver rating minimum drive time era. If I recall those things exactly in IMSA, say big race like the Rolex 24, but I would just have to think that the way the rules are tended, minded, looked after, it's not a lot of caveats thrown in like, oh, well, hey, man, you came up with a COVID positive and therefore you didn't meet your drive time. Isn't the case here, but just we're talking theoreticals. Had it happened, I don't know if IMSA or any other sanctioning body really gets too caught up in the what, where, and why. There's a simple case of you must do a minimum amount of this to be classified. And since that wasn't achieved, had that not been achieved, I should say, James, I don't think they're looking at COVID or whatever else saying, oh, well, then that's an excuse. You go ahead and get the points. I think it's rather blind that way. And I think it should be because there's a lot of reasons for a person to come out of a car and all of them are seemingly valid. Could be a death in the family, could be birth of a child, could be many things positive or negative. If it says you must complete X amount of time of the car to score points for the full season championship and you do not, I would have to imagine that they would be starting off in a pretty bad way. So that's that. Um, In terms of going forward that Matt asks about in terms of drive times, I don't think there would be any adjustment knowing that they just had this happen for the first time and they're now going to do something different. Um, I Again, I don't think they react to a one-off to then change their rules. Um, also, the to close here, the question from Ricky, why wasn't the entry pulled from the track? As IMSA explained, and I am waiting to get a, a fuller picture, they had whatever assessment protocols that they were ready to use to look at and assess were the team members and the drivers using masks and doing you more or less can't social distance in a pit box with a bunch of people in a confined space, but were people doing things to their best throughout the event and sanitizing and cleaning and were they upholding the standards that IMSA has set forth? And we would have to assume based on their confirming that they did not yank the whole entry that everything else was lived up to in terms of expectations couple little wrinkles here to close of the things i'm waiting to hear back on was the car sanitized internally after they learned of antonio's positive pulled him in to pit lane we know uh how's this uh When my wife and I come back from something where we have just been around people, it's usually not many people, to be clear. It's usually just if we've just come from physical therapy or the hospital for chemo or whatever else, we will open the doors to our car knowing that we're about to sit in it, thinking that, who knows, maybe we have... Something has trailed and wafted along with us, and we will use whatever spray, name brand, you know, 99.9% of 
effective germ killing spray and spray down the inside of the car. Uh, if someone delivers something to our door, we will often do the same thing and it's overkill, but it's also one of those things where you say, well, wouldn't you rather not be the silly person who could have gone overboard and didn't, and then got sick. So I'm curious if there were, there was an aerosol spray or who knows what, anything wiped down inside the car. I don't know. Uh, if I was smart, I would have gone and looked at the pit stop time when he climbed out of the car and then the car left. That would probably answer pretty quickly. Granted, uh, an extra two or three seconds to spray if you're using an aerosol would be easy. If it was true, using disinfectant wipes, we'd think that would take a couple minutes. But that's a question I've asked and I'm waiting for an answer on. I'm also a little bit unclear of the, if someone has COVID and has been in the bubble within a team, we know that masks are highly effective, but by no means 100%. Was there additional testing done for all members, crew members, drivers, and whatnot on the spot? Again, things that I'm hoping to learn more about, but these are the kinds of things I think would be should I say adequate reactions, Graham, or expected reactions? Some sort of thing where you go, ah, this is a potential danger in our midst. How do we react to that to make sh- to minimize that danger to the best of our ability? Last little thing to throw in here, and it maybe fits the us spraying aerosols and whatever, whenever we can, whenever we end up being around people and leave them, it's... There's one thing to have the standard that says, these are the rules we've come up with that say, this is how you must react in such situations. There's also that extra layer of, well, okay, cool. We met all those, but we want to go even farther. Just be curious to see how this was treated from both a series side and a team side. I'm not saying either side has done anything wrong or been negligent in any way. These are just things I'm curious to learn about and await that information. I think it's, it's fair to say, isn't it? We are in extraordinary times and we're learning. We're learning with every time something goes wrong, you learn. Uh, perhaps another stage that needs to be there in the process somewhere. As long as somebody is doing that thing about taking two steps back from the whole picture and making sure you've still got something sustainable. But, you know, I agree. It's, it's, it'd be interesting to find out what did happen. It'll be interesting to find out opinions as to whether or not that's what should have happened. And it'll then be interesting to find out what will happen should things happen in the future. And it's not necessarily the case that any or all of those three are exactly the same answer. Uh, we're going to put an Unless uh, you're going to give the tall ginger one a call now, we're going to put LMP3 a little further down well, the pile. No, let's call him. I mean, he called him. Yeah, oh, he he chimed in to say uh, he's ready. So clearly, oh, did he? he? Oh, yes, he wants to come in and I think light me up to begin. Um, Does but, he? Well, I mean, of course, because he fly. he feels oh, like, like he aced the uh, predictions. Um, oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I think I need to put him straight here. Well, wait till uh, my slow fingers can scroll up and find uh, Ryan so, Kish. So what, so, what, 
So while um, so while Marshall's doing that, I should remind you, if you didn't listen to the preview show, it was a spectacular piece of podcasting history, I should tell you. And spectacular the fail, show, yes. Absolutely. At the end of that show, uh, we all of us gave our predictions per class for the overall, etc. And I think it's fair to say we were tragically wrong on more or less every single count. Um, LMP3 was, uh, was uh, of course, been the first time for the Rolex 24, first time for the IMSA Weather Tech Sports Car Championship. Uh, was one which I think we, we, we all found slightly perplexing. It came up with very different assessments um, of the uh, of the potential performance we might see for the Rolex 24, uh, but came out with, I thought, to be honest with you, it was one of those unsatisfactory measurements where we were predicting where we thought, not just who we thought might win, but where we thought they might finish in the overall order. And you know what? On reflection, that probably wasn't the best way to have done this uh, because the inevitability is that we would all have been wrong. And that's what eventually ended up was all three of us were wrong. Um, you know, so is Ryan on the line? No, I'm going about to dial him in because that you know this is the only this is where we control the show and set the yeah. narrative without him because you know yeah, we're being jerks, enough. but it's our name on the show, not his. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I'm the worst predictor in the world. That's been well known, stated no, you, for many no, no, years. No, 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 I think you'll find that's my. I've, I've got that T-shirt. Okay, so I prognosticated, predicted that zero LMP3s would finish the race. So that was totally I, wrong. And by finish, I meant not cross the checkered flag under the checkered flag, but actually compete for all 24 hours without massive gaps because of reliability problems. So that was 100% wrong. I did say that if I lost the bet on predictions that Gr- Graham and I would be done with the show, we'd hand it over to Ryan. Ryan's prediction was the highest placing LMP3 entry would be P19. But it's wrong. It was P18. So it doesn't matter that it actually did better. He chose a number. He was wrong. So I think it's a bit of a wash. I was looking forward to handing over the show, frankly. I could could use a little bit more sleep. But so we, we all failed. But what we're looking forward to is getting Ryan on the phone to tell us how wrong we are. And I think, Graham, just because, again, I'm about to hit call right now. We yeah. need to just feed that. So if he goes in that direction, we just need yeah. to bow our heads and grovel. And, and then uh, maybe you can hit him over the head with a reality. So let me call the lad here, our favorite little ginger college student. <laughs> Let's see. We're calling. Will he answer? Last time he didn't. Calling Ryan Kish. Will he come on the show? Is he here? Where is the young hey is that ryan kish on the phone yep yep yes it is well we have uh, gotten to a section of questions arranged by you and Ooh. i think you might have tipped your hand a little bit on uh on how you're feeling here about lmp3 graham as i'm gonna hit the little marker so folks know we're transitioning to this section here yeah. what's the name of this category that Ryan came up with? Uh, it, it's here. It's the um, person who has had fewest pets on the week in sports cars, I think. Is that yeah. the right one? Yes. Yes. Well, well, I've got it down. I've just made a mark here. It's one dead fish. Fish killer. Mm. Fish. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and he yep. named this the LMP3, the greatest prediction ever. 
Um, where should we start here, Ryan? That's just not true. Well, but but where should we start, Ryan? Yeah. The the thing is, is I, I I think I was speaking not necessarily for myself, but for the masses. Oh, this is what people were saying. Man of the people. I'm going to. Yeah. Okay. A few, a few, a few few dialed Joe Biden by mistake. (laughs) Can you, so walk us through here because we've got a, you know, granted, I, I find it amusing that as the person who puts the questions together for us, you, you've put two that are very, very positive and complimentary of you atop the list. Yeah. But why don't you crack it mm-hmm. open? Because your name's mentioned and you should speak your own name into glory, Ryan Kish. Go, go, Ryan, go, go, Ryan. <laughs> The, uh, the first one that I want to talk about is from Eric. Uh, this last name's not happening. It's Hark Raider, but hold on. You put them together, and you're not even reading the first one at the top. So Wait, I'm uh, going I'm wow. to get to that. Okay. We're going to get to that. All right. All right. But, because this was the best question. This is your show now, by the way. Isn't that, isn't that yeah, how yeah, the bet worked out? We're his, his question, can we just get a shout with how accurate our guest commentator, he forgot my name, but we forgive him for that. For the preview was in his call where LMP3 would finish overall, he said 19th overall. Uh, they were 18th. They would have been 19th had Marshall not colluded with Sebastian Bourdais and had the five Cadillac uh, puncture a tire in the final two hours. That so is true. Apart from the, apart I, from the collusion, we would have been right on the money. Am uh, I allowed to just interject here? Well, no, no, no. we got to give our boy his day in the sun. Just, so do you want to read the I'll, opening I'll, question from Right Turn Lover? Because this is more opportunity for you some, to uh, bathe yourself some, in some love. Points. Right Turn Lover says, does Kish RM, my Twitter, uh, please follow me, need any more pets when he already has you two? And I'd have never guessed the LMP3s to finish as high up high up as they did, hashtag me personally, expected them to finish behind the top GTDs. Marshall, you also had a similar prediction. I believe you predicted them somewhere in the 40s? How insulting. Yes, so we've learned from one of the original participants in the show, Right Turn Lover, been sending in questions, I think, maybe from episode one. This is our three-year anniversary show, by the way, Ryan. Um, Oh, who is sending in and demoting us, not just as your subordinates now that you own and run the show, but we are apparently, yeah. we've become replacements for the fish you killed. Graham and I are now your pets. Do we get pet names? Mm-hmm. Um, no. No? Okay. No. So you're going to... Oh, we've got new sponsors now. Wow. Okay. Um, oh. Graham? Should, I think you you had something to offer here. You were waiting. Well, to- I, th- I think I think it's it. Look, without wanting to take absolutely anything away from Ryan's nothing, nothing away. Yeah, I don't want to take mm-hmm. anything away at all from him. But all, all I could say is the thought that occurs to me is he was just the least wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he wasn't right. It was just the least wrong. You Who's failed eight? as much as us. You said you predicted no. the wrong number. No, no, Just because no, right, it's slightly okay. more in your favor doesn't make you right. I mean, right. okay. Here's the thing, Ryan. Let's say after, as you come off, because I'm sure this is going to be a frustrating experience the next five minutes for you. I guarantee it will be. Um, but when you come off the phone, should you wish to put your fist through the wall in your bedroom? Okay. The the difference between 
you explaining to your parents that you've done it and explaining to your parents you've done it after a hashed attempt to cover it over with, I've no doubt, uh, a post of an LMP3 car. Mm-hmm. The difference between those two actions, leaving it as a whole or trying to cover it up with a poster, it's just less wrong. It's not wrong no, and right. It's wrong, no, no, wrong no, no, and no, no, right. No, no, it's no less wrong. It's wrong. You, you, the, the, the lead LMP3 car did not finish 18th. It did not. And, and Graham, that's where you're getting confused because it, it's not the least wrong. It was actually... We, the LMP3 cars were so much better than even the most oppor- the most sort of uh, grandest predictions could have predicted. They were better than anyone, even myself, chairman of the LMP3 fan club, thought they could be. So LMP3, LMDH, we think. Well, I think Wayne Taylor, this is breaking exclusive scoop, Wayne Taylor Racing will be selling that Acura of theirs. Yep. And getting a Leger JSP 320 because that is the future of sports car racing. Publish that now. I mean, you're the boss, even though you failed uh, in your prediction, which voids your taking over the show, but will at least, you know, humor you for this episode. Um, I think hmm. you got a heck of a story to write for dailysportscar.com. Don't even hmm. call Wayne Taylor for confirmation. No, no, no. Just Not you've it. spoken it into existence. Just write it. I think you know that. that I think it's important that you start now on the book that inevitably follows this, which is mm-hmm. the history, the rise of glory. Um, the hypercar is clearly done now for the WEC. Glickenhaus uh, mm-hmm. and Toyota, I'm sure, are on the phone already to Duquesne Engineering, uh, to Janetta, to Ades, uh, to see what they can do about binning their fabulous cars due on track in just a few weeks' time for the pair of them. Um, and going instead with a slightly awkward-looking, slightly stunted thing with a low rumbling Nismo V8, understressed. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. It, there's it, no doubt. It's in my like mind you just described Ryan. That's not very nice of you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, uh, so are we going to have to look forward to future episodes of the Weekend Sports Car, sponsored by your favourite fast casual restaurant? In Fast Casual is a restaurant. It's a restaurant type, by the way. Um, the deal's in the works. Don't want to get too presumptive, but, you know. He's just going to be progress. insufferable, Graham. Oh, my God. What did we unleash here? Well, since you are the owner of this show and the star, unquestioned star, although my finger is kind of hovering near the disconnect button, um, I need to throw a question to you. First time I think someone has written in specifically for you, Ryan Kish, and dang it, I, we need to. Yeah, we are celebrating your Majesty, courtesy of Jamie Bender. Says this question is for Ryan Kish, since I presume he is now running the show. Who would have predicted the LMP2 cars would be the class to poop all over the place instead of LMP3? Says it looked like the P3 class did a better job of staying on track and. Out of the way, uh, SRA Smoking Puppy 841 adds in something similar. Got to admit, fully agree with their take. Did you, among our predictions, spoken or unspoken, expect P2 to be the troublemaker, Ryan, instead of P3? Maybe I didn't expect P2 to be the issue, but I certainly didn't expect P3 to be the issue. I think we we all knew, as everyone except Marshall Pruitt knew that LMP3 was going to be the class of the field. 
Um, and like us or a smoking puppy uh, mentions, they caused zero full course yellows. If you don't count uh, James Collado just crashing into one of our beloved LMP threes, uh, which we don't count. I love just James Collado, by the way, from these specifically quote for that. unquote factory drivers, whatever. So, I mean, LMP three was uh, superb. And yeah, they ran into a few technical issues happens to everyone, but you look at LMP2 where four, four, we had four retirements, six cars running into serious problems. LMP3, you know, everybody had a couple of little niggles. These cars have never run for 24 hours. But for the most part, only one retirement and, you know, one issue for the, I believe it was the 91 Riley. They had a, the water bottle leaked onto the electronics. I mean, that's just so strange. I'm not counting that. I mean, that's I, just I, I, The thing is, they say water bottle. They say it was a water bottle. I think it was a bit of a Johnny Herbert type incident with the seat, but that's uh, that's another story. <laughs> we'll tell you one tale, by the way, about LMP3, and it came from uh, Jerome Blakemolen, who had mm. great things to say about his experience driving the LMP3, having spent most of his recent years um, in IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship uh, racing in GTD, uh, where, of course, BOP comes into it. One thing mm. that you don't have is BOP and what he enjoyed was and albeit it was for the most part a fight back drive after probably Jerome himself uh, had a bathroom incident in the car wasn't the tricks bottle at all uh, that uh, he could push he could push and I suspect he was one of very few drivers in those cars that was pushing what I was watching through that race and this is the one serious point you'll get from me on LMP3 I think they knew full well that uh, that we were going to be punished with uh, the outcome of their labours. And what I actually saw was they were running to a pace that they thought these cars could survive. Uh, and with the exception of some standout laps from maybe one or two of those drivers in the LMP3 cars, what we're seeing was those cars lapping at a kind of sustainable pace for much of the time. They were effectively... Uh, a kind of how can you put this it's um like a static orbit really uh, you could predict where they were going to be on every lap because they were just metronomically going round at the same period of time what i'd say there is they were racing to the finish they simply weren't racing each other i don't think i saw one single uh, one single occasion beyond the first 10 or 15 minutes where you could suggest that there were uh, LMP3 cars wheel to wheel. They were simply lapping to finish the race. They weren't having a race with each other. They were having a race with the events. And it is fair to say that they were successful and so successful that they succeeded in uh, Ryan being incorrect. So I'm going to cover off the rest of the LMP3 category. It's just good to know that we have the security blanket of the world's foremost LMP3 expert and president of the Classes Fan Club here, should chairman, I fail. Chairman, please, please get the title right. It's chairman. Well, uh, yet again, I fail. Uh, Stuart Hart mm-hmm. says, can I put in an order for you guys for some Marshall Loves LMP3 badges? Absolutely. I mean, let's get those going right now. Nikolai B., uh, this is great. We get a QAnon reference here. <laughs> uh, he says, uh, in reference to my... Uh, prediction that zero lmp3s would finish the race it says marshall is this how QAnon felt like on the 21st of january referring to a new president <laughs> be inaugurated when their theory was it could never happen uh when the prophesized doomsday that failed to materialize 
and how do we return to our normal lives? Hashtag LMP3 Anon. That might be my favorite question in a while, Nikolai. Thank you. Uh, to close things off, uh, and I apologize for getting a little bit serious here. Uh, Nick Smith says, hello, guys. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the inclusion of LMP3 into the mix. Says to me, hashtag me personally, sorry, forgot it. It's a bit superfluous, and aside from a few cars, it didn't add anything to the race uh, from four more people working. Okay. Uh, here's my general thought, Nick, and I know it's not specific to the race itself. IMSA, like a number of racing series in the world right now, really need all they can get in terms of a feeder mechanism for new entrants and new am in the pro-am driver side the funded drivers who say i'm going to buy an lmp3 car and fund all of it half of it some of it something where we'll get to the broadcast stuff in a little bit guys where the broadcast did not seem to track LMP3 much at all in terms of a consistent uh, member of the 24 hours worth of televised coverage, right? It wasn't a theme that was constantly being picked up or, hey, here's a great battle. There wasn't much of that that I recall. If anything, it seemed like coming back from a commercial break, there might be an update and it would often include LMP2 and LMP3, kind of a tick the box that we're talking about it and putting a camera on one of those types of cars for a little bit and then back to some other bigger theme. But there was a little bit of an afterthought feel to both classes in the presentation, Nick. So I'd say from that side, it LMP3 did not feel like it was a serious contributor to the event, but I wouldn't put that on them. So at least my overarching view, it's, yeah, I'm not saying that LMP3 cars put on a staggering race for 24 hours and will never forget it. I look at their first time participation in the Rolex, Rolex series, Rolex 24 and WeatherTech championship is more of a boy. This could be a good thing to have folks running in the IMSA prototype challenge series, the standalone one say, cool. Well, now we know that we have a place to go to and aspire towards. And for some who get in and run an LMP3 in the big series, could be that cool transition thing for them to, <clears throat> excuse me, aspire towards LMP2 or DPI. So I look at it as more of a transitional class in value in terms of creating a pipeline than anything else. I hope get to Sebring, get to the other places on the calendar where they will race. We will have actual reasons to focus the TV cameras on them because they are putting on a really amazing show. Last thing here from Lawrence Cunningham says he's really happy for Oliver Askew to win an LMP3 on his debut in IMSA, by the way. He says, any chance of a full season uh, if nothing in IndyCar comes around for him? Don't have an answer for it, but I would have to believe, Lawrence, that as a silver-rated driver, one of the great mysteries of the universe, <laughs> there would be a number of teams heading into the full season saying, well, huh, Maybe that's a guy we need to consider putting in our car because he delivered like a platinum was, I would say, the class of the LMP3 field in terms of pace, chasing people down, all kinds of great stuff there. Um, I would have to believe that he might be in high demand by teams who either have a slot for a silver or wondering if they should improve their silver before the rest 
of the season gets going. Graham Goodwin, where are we going next, my friend? I was just going to wrap this up by saying, by the way, congratulations to the winning team, the 74 crew with Scott Andrews, Oliver Askew, Spencer Piggott, and Gar Robinson, by the way, a man who, uh, despite having parents that couldn't be bothered finishing spelling his first name, um, now has something that three times Le Mans champion, world champion, ex-Formula One driver, and current Audi Formula E team principal, Alan doesn't have a functioning watch. Um, and uh, so good, well done to them. Let's move on, though. Um, and as we flail through the list of questions in search of the obscure, the next one comes to the Settler Delara. And we have a, a number of questions here from J.M. Chandler. That's a name I don't recall seeing before. Uh, Rob Horn and a name I've never seen before, Daniel Summerskill, at, uh, who apparently now has a new Twitter handle as uh, at LMD Husky 2023. Yes, hashtag, I love it. Hashtag I know. Um, Should mention, Graham, by the way, we're nearing 45 minutes, so we're okay. approximately halfway. Cracking on through. Um, uh, Daniel says, why do you think the Settler Delara LMP2 was so competitive compared to the Oricas? It was near the top of the timesheets all week, leading the class until it hit trouble. In the WEC, Delara chassis has never been competitive. Uh, Jim Chandler says, does the pace of the Settler Delara show this life in the Italian stallion? Hoping something can reverse the Orica trend. And Rob Horn says, hey gang, how much did the Settler Delara team give him so for that car to be competitive? Do you think they're going to get a refund after their car troubles? Should say, by the way, I was, uh, during the race, I was impressed with uh, it so much. So I went back and did a bit of checking. It was the 24th race for that car or for, for the Settler uh, team, whether or not that is the original chassis, I must admit, I don't know. Uh, they have not yet had that car on a podium anywhere. Those 24 races, by the way, this was their first IMSA race. Three Le Mans hours for the uh, Settler de Lara, a full season of the WEC, and two full seasons in, might be three full seasons, I'll have to double-check that, in the ELMS. Um, and only ever two retirements in those 24. That's impressive enough. The other impressive figure, though, from LMP2 was the first ever retirement in LMP2 from Racing Team Netherlands uh, after uh, Fritz van Erd caught oil. I think it was this international horseshoe, wasn't it? Uh, he went off and uh, uh, stoved, bust up. Apologies, stove the front of the car in. Uh, so, unfortunately... Um, the, uh, the issue there, by the way, should uh, explain why did that car retire, because we did have a question about that. Um, it turns out that Fritz, in getting out from the incident, uh, got the car into reverse, but chipped a tooth of, on the, uh, the, the, uh, the gear ratio. And when they restarted the car, that uh, clattered the rest of the gearbox. Uh, so it was that. It was very, very unfortunate. But the Delara, I don't know if you saw this because it was kind of into the wee small hours when it was having its real glory run, uh, MP. What did you think of the Italian Stallion? I thought it was a perfect decision to bring the car over for Daytona. I don't think it would be as competitive elsewhere in the calendar, but the car is known for being a slippery piece. And so for that alone, I was both happy to see it, but also wondering for those who have the money or capabilities, boy, uh, since they award points based on uh, team entrant and whatnot, and there's nothing super specific to uh, the chassis that you use and IMSA's accounting uh, capacity, wonder why other LMP2 teams haven't thought about 
using a Delara for the Rolex 24, just based on its reputation for aerodynamic superiority in a straight line. So, yeah, uh, I thought it was pretty, I, A, pretty cool. Wish that it um, fared a little bit better. But, yeah, uh, I wonder if more folks are going to consider that uh, for the future. Yeah, we've had, um, well, I think three race wins ever by Delara LMP2s. One came in the European Le Mans series, very early days of the Gibson Power Class for SMP Racing, and two last season in Asia Le Mans series with the Carlin Run uh, Thunderhead team. Uh, that, that car was ultimately very competitive in actually not a bad field. It wasn't a very deep field. Uh, we had, I think, seven uh, cars in the field, but it was a competitive field. Uh, but it did show very well there. It's it's sort of, as that class gets to the the kind of autumn of its days, if you like, before the next generation, sort of a little too late, isn't it? Uh, but it would be nice to think that somebody was watching that and thinking, hey, you know, because my guess is there's some decent prices available on used uh, Delara LMP2s that are used LMP2 car lot near you. Bring a trailer.com, uh, craigslist.org, I think we can find one. Um, we're going to go on to two other quick um, uh, areas of discussion uh, that we know we like. Uh, now, you remember in the, the early days of the podcast, third anniversary, still weathering my leather, getting hotter by the moment. Um <laughs> We restricted ourselves to three mentions of BOP. Yes. Um, and we've got, happily, just three questions on BOP. We're then going to go on to talk about long cautions. But BOP, from Ryan Terpster, from Duncan Butcher, from Jacob Bame, um, all saying BOP seemed pretty good. Uh, Ryan Terpster said they did a real good on BOP. It seems like only uh, Chase Elliott was off in BOP. Uh, Duncan says, given the 23 hours and 52 minutes slugfest and DPI, is it fair to conclude that they nailed the BOP as well as is humanly possible? And Jacob Baim says, uh, to performance, balance of performance, balance of performance. Three uses used up already. Thank you. He's got the same memory I have. Now I challenge you to talk about the Rolex 24 hours BOP. Uh, Action Express Racing has been especially vocal about it not being well done. GTD brought up some certain Pricing results on top of the pile, at least to me. What are your thoughts on the BOP? Before you get into it, uh, MP, with the exception of GTLM, where it did look off, um, I thought that was pretty darn good. Yeah. Uh, we won't go into who sent it to us, Graham, uh, a couple hours into the race, but we did receive a email uh pointing out that our comments, my comments, in the last episode, the preview, uh, stating that the folks at Cadillac who are saying another brand might not have been showing all their potential, um, we got an email that pretty much backed up a belief that, indeed, the other brand was at a big disadvantage. Um, that brand may or may not have won the race. Um, may not have, according to my mathematical capabilities which are fairly suspect led 43 percent of the race um yeah you know was the race winning manufacturer capable of setting the same outright fast qualifying level lap in the race as some of the other brands no there's no arguing that whatsoever were they there or thereabouts and certainly not a car that seemed to be easily passed 
by the other ones that we could say that was for sure. So I would just suggest, as I did with a tweet as well, that maybe the folks at IMSA who got hammered for the belief that their DPI BOP was off, maybe that wasn't the case. In general, in the classes where BOP reigns, felt like, yeah, GTLM was the only one where it wasn't exactly spot on. Let me try and put a number to that just to quantify things a little bit as I pop around to a bunch of different tabs. Uh, the number 24 BMW Team RLL M8 GTE led a total of five laps. The sister number 25, uh, no, I apologize. Let me uh, wind that up. The 24 led eight laps. The Risi Competizione number 62 Ferrari led 20 laps. And the 25 BMW led 27 laps. So out of a race where uh, 770 laps, I believe, uh, were completed by GTLM, the two Corvettes added up. Let's see. The number three car led 238 laps, the race-winning entry. The sister car led 477. So if you put 477 and 238 together and know that the race only lasted 770 for that class, you could say the Corvettes were pretty darn good. Uh, In GTD, I would say there was a little bit of surprise on my end. You guys tell me if you share in that assessment at all. The Mercedes, AMG GT3s, mm-hmm. I don't know if they were on any of our radars as, oh, watch out. Oh, boy, breakthrough win coming. Uh, but, yeah, uh, this sure was a pretty strong demonstration uh, between the 75 Sun Energy 1 and the 57 Windward Racing. Winning on the IMSA debut, IMSA WeatherTech Championship debut, we had, you know, sprinklings of Lamborghinis, uh, AF course was pretty strong with their Ferrari. So we could suggest that they were in the ballpark. Lexus certainly charged hard in the beginning, but they had a lot of misfortune of their own. Aston Martin, a little bit, Porsche, a little bit. Uh, yeah, overall I'd say DPI stood out as the most quality demonstration of balancer performance tables. GTD seemed to be pretty close for maybe a little bit less than half the cars. GTLM was the one that certainly appeared to need work. Uh, should, should add, by the way, I, I don't disagree with a single word of that, by the way, but um, notably, uh, and I went back and checked um, the record book for this one, I believe that 1-2 in GTD for the Mercedes-AMGs is the first time ever at the Rolex 24 the Mercedes car has won a class uh, since the start of the race uh, back in the early, very early 1960s. So that is a very much a first for the Mercedes-AMG brand. Um, lots of firsts kicking around. Yeah, notably, I think it was in... Um, uh, in GTLM, I know there were some complaints about uh, the, uh, the 24 car being they thought down on power. Uh, the thought did occur to me that might, they might want to check the radiator grill to see whether or not there was part of a Porsche engine cover stoved in there uh, to see whether or not that was uh, stopping the required airflow coming through. But uh, yeah, at times it did look. I don't ever want to use the word easy, but easier uh, for the Corvette drivers going by 
uh, other competitors on the banking in the same class with ease. There was the one point, I think it was early to mid-morning, where I seem to recall it was the four car going by the BMW. You're sort of used to seeing someone drafting and then ducking through with a cigarette paper's width. And when the um, the, the shot changed to the in-car from the BMW, commentator was clearly expecting to say just that and couldn't because the Corvette was about four car lengths down the road. Yeah, um, That spoke to me about there being something a little off, uh, either with uh, one or other of those cars in some way, shape or form. Let's move on from BOP. Let's go on to another quick uh, talking point, and that is one about long cautions. A couple of quick questions here. One from Bill Gray, another name I don't recall seeing before, and uh, Daniel Summerskill back Ooh. again. Uh, and, and I don't know... Another first-time caller. Uh, DPI Corvette GTD battles were entertaining for full 24 hours with a few things that left Bill Gray scratching his head. How could it take 34 minutes to go green with no car stops on track? Uh, he says the U.S. coverage, by the way, and we'll come to that uh, shortly, was brutal. 109 commercial breaks in 18 hours, <laughs> says Bill. <Jesus>. Daniel says... <laughs> Does Simpson need to do something regarding the length of cautions? Hashtag me personally. Even when something minor happened, like debris, it takes 20 plus minutes to get back to green due to the malarkey with wave rounds, prototype stops, GT stops, DP class splits, uh, stops for ice cream, etc., etc. Stops to pat everybody on the back for predictions about LMP3. Needs to be something where they don't take an extra 15 minutes to do that, says Daniel. Um, Long cautions. It did seem at times. Although at times there was more of a uh, an explanation that perhaps was obvious, but um, at times they did seem excessive. Boy, yeah, it's become a bit of an expected thing, and I mm. don't know if that has been realized and accepted within the series. I know that as the observers and opiners externally this is a pretty frequent comment at the Rolex 24 in particular, but same things often said during the 12 hours at Sebring or Petit Le Mans of the, Hey, something happened. Realize you need to clean it up, but wow, that's a lot of extra time tacked on for procedures, pit procedures and whatever other procedures there seems to be a significant disconnect between what does it take to resolve the on-track problem and then this other amount of time, which is just seemingly like, oh, well, we got to do it. There's electives here. The folks who make the rules run the race. So there's the possibility to either rewrite the rules or make some of the mandatory long yellow, non-short yellow procedures tip into effect. The part about the one that took 32 minutes to resolve, which, yeah, as we understand, the pace car apparently was not going fast enough, did not pick up those who were ready to leave pit lane. We ended up having a bit of a stack up on pit lane with a red light, and I believe it was three cars that were out of position. Now, I haven't gone back to see exactly how many cars were running at the time of this. I think it was maybe 47 were left full, you know, fully active mm-hmm. in the race. Whatever the number was, 
three out of 47-ish, um, I realize that these things do not happen quickly and easily. There's no automated system to say, move this, move that, move the other, and off we go. There's checking and double-checking and looking through video and looking through timing loops. I realize that there's a lot of investigative work that goes on. Just the understanding of why such a thing would cause the race to be down for that long, it's a really hard thing to explain or rationalize or say, yep, totally get it, all good, we understand. When you have our dear listeners sports car fans in general even us on the media side saying yeah we don't see the big explosion and you know car parts all over the place and wow this is going to take a while to clean up when you see no strife on track and yet we're just burning time i know it's a 24-hour race i know 32 minutes is a tiny fraction of it but when you're watching something for entertainment and they put it on the TV for people to be entertained, and you decide, hey, we're going to, there's a timeout that's been called in the middle of our Super Bowl, or name whatever your favorite big sporting event is, and we're just going to kind of sort of stand around for more than a half hour. It's just hard to grasp that things are being done at the height of excellence. So I'm not saying there was a lack of excellence. I'm just saying you're never going to get people to buy into the fact that no crash, no, oh my goodness, I can see the reason for it, but please just understand we need to take more than a half hour to run through all of our procedures and get the field ordered in the right direction. I mean, the flip side is, hey, I know we should have been going faster at the pace car and y'all should have been able to blend coming right out of pit lane and everything should have gone fine, but uh, some of y'all decided to screw up and stack up uh, and get into the wrong order, so we're going to restart and since IMSA does not penalize people by sending, say, an offending DPI, which should be running in the first couple of cars overall, they don't send them all the way to the true 47th place at the end of the field for a penalty. You go to the back of your class. Part of me wonders, oh. hey, uh, y'all screwed up. We screwed up, but y'all screwed up too. We can either burn 32 minutes or just say, we're going to get back to racing. You three cars, go to the back of your class. I'm sorry, Sorry, but we're here for those who pay for us to be here. Let's get back to entertainment. I don't know if you all agree with that, but that's my general sentiment. I think what what I'd add here, uh, I think are two things. I think there is a lesson. Uh, the lesson for the organizing body is there needs to be a lot more clarity, a lot faster about why we are in that phase. And I wonder... Uh, we've seen it done with lots of different parts of the sports MP, some form of direct communication to the listening and watching audience from race control. Uh, we don't hear Bo Barfield's name, uh, sorry, uh, voice at all on the broadcast. We do, for instance, from time to time, hear the voice of Eduardo Freitas and the WEC, the LMS, etc. I wonder whether or not that would help if actually we've got an explanation as to the phase of caution we're in um it gives a for instance an opportunity that if we know we've got three or four laps that they can go and interview chase elliott again for another opportunity there they're not that they need anymore uh but uh i do think there's a there's an opportunity missed for clarification but i 
more than that, agree with you. I think you've got to take a step back away from any kind of process that's been allowed to evolve in that way, which this process most certainly has, and ask genuinely, is this actually now fit for purpose? It does strike me as being another example of a process that has evolved too much. It's uh, the risk management is too much now compared to what it is we're trying to achieve, which is to get back to racing, get back to entertaining people. Um, yeah, thirty-two minutes. That that yeah, uh, no, that wrong, wrong, wrongly wrong. Let's move on, and let's move on to I know one of the areas of the, the race that I know you particularly enjoyed, uh, Marshall. I know you were watching the NBC broadcast, NBC CSN, and. Uh, this this year, I gather a unique new sponsor um, this year because it was indeed the Chase Elliott show, from what I can understand. And we've got a number of questions about this, most of whom take one side of this debate. Ken Johnson um, asking uh, which 24 hours of Daytona announcer want a date with Chase Elliott. Uh, David Barker says... Am I getting grumpier with age? Yes, you are, David. Or was that a pretty awful broadcast? Lots of battles and passing missed. When caught on camera, broadcasters too busy talking about Chase Elliott and NASCAR to notice. He eventually turned off the audio. Chris Ward said, hey, MP and GG, thanks for reading this one out. You're welcome. Amazing race from Green to Checker. That said, it's time for an airing of grievances. How much more airtime could they give to Chase Elliott? We know he's a NASCAR champion. It seemed like they were drooling every time he was mentioned. It was very off-putting considering the other championship winning drivers in the race. Too many commercials. Thank the racing gods for track pass, he said. Um, but uh, we go on through that lot. John Sable, I want to do a Brian Till appreciation post. Ooh, good oh, call, John. Oh, there you go. It was rough listening to the first six hours or so, but after I ordered $500 of Chase Elliott merchandise, one of the greatest <laughs> drivers of all time, it was great listening to Brian break down the sporty car race, a true gem we must protect at all costs. Can we have just a moment to thank the Lord for Brian Till? We should. There you go. And the congregation uh, and then, says amen. Indeed, uh, but just to, to, to balance that, um, Brian Cohn said he just wanted to say he thoroughly enjoyed watching the coverage on NBC Gold. Thinks Carl Petty, Dell Jr. are underrated as commentators for road racing. Thinks it's amazing. The WTR brought, uh, brought the Acura their first Daytona 24 hours victory. His friends and I had a great time sharing laughs over the 24 via their Discord discussion. Seriously good fun. I should say, by the way, Brian Cohn is a uh, a pen name on the plume for Mrs. Chase Elliott. So there you go. Wow. Uh, so Thanks for writing in, Chase. Because I, I didn't see it. I didn't hear it because, of course, it was a U.S. broadcast. We didn't get that uh, here in the U.K. I was either listening to the audio feed or just watching pictures and a timing screen. So do tell me, what how, how spectacular a viewing experience was that, MP? <sighs> I'm going to fill my lungs for this one. So relax. need to mention this up front, provided the temporary owner of the show has not uh, hung up yet. Uh, we'll get some Ryan Kish thoughts here in a moment. That would have been the part where he spoke if he was still on the show. Um, yeah, I'm still here. Oh, there we go. Uh, I was taking a drink of water because it had been a while from me. So I was just Keeping it on his investment, MP. Yep. It, I, it sounded like you said infestation, but I'll go with investment. Here's a general thing that should probably override anything else that I'm going to say that'll follow. The obvious reason 
for turning the race into the hashtag Rolex 24 of Chase Elliott was to appease NASCAR viewers to serve NBC Sports partnership with NASCAR, knowing that they supply about half the season's worth of coverage. And it was also to make sure that for any NASCAR fans tuning in, that they got their extra rations of the reigning, defending NASCAR Cup champion, Chase Elliott. So, try and build some new followers, viewers, possibly, within IMSA, with the knowledge that there would be some NASCAR fans maybe tuning in for the first time, but Chase Elliott fans wanting to see how he does in his first ever sports car race, first major race of the year, at least here in the U.S., I get all the reasonings behind why NBC Sports would have a heavily skewed Chase Elliott angle to the entire broadcast. It would appear from some of the ratings numbers that I've seen, I don't they weren't the official yet. Usually it takes a day or two for them to be official, not the overnights, but it appears that whether it was the quality of the race in general or the NASCAR-centric side with Chase and Jimmy Johnson and Austin Dillon, whatever the reasons were, there appears to have been a pretty decent uptick in viewership from last year to this year. Now, granted, we aren't talking amazing millions upon millions of people tuning in, but for a racing series that tends not to generate insane numbers uh, of television viewers the approach to massively embracing nascar we could say probably accounted for some of this uptick again we're waiting to see what the final numbers are but strategy wise looks like this might have paid off where i take umbrage with this is a pretty simple one. This is, for those of us here on the talking side and for those of you on the listening side, I would have to assume, this is our first big race of the year. The sports car thing that we love, we know that in the world of motor racing, it's a sub-genre in terms of popularity and awareness, right? you got your Formula One and NASCAR and there's some other series, but it's a bit like a club. The uh, anorak is a term we use a lot about hyper fans that know every little minuscule thing. We don't apply that to some a lot of other series. So just saying, when the Rolex 24 at Daytona happens, I'm pretty confident that the majority of the people tuning in and watching or listening on IMSA radio, they're the diehard fans who live for this. Where things, I think, went way too far during this broadcast it's the fact that as someone who spent the majority of his life in the sport yada 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 worked in IMSA when I was 19 years old been around this stuff for seemingly forever in my little existence I felt like a some often an unwelcome guest at my own quote race watching the thing that I love and have for so long I felt like a bit of an uninvited guest at a extremely long NASCAR race. And the, I've, writ, I've written a, in the post-race 
column that I have yet to finish referred to it as their slavish devotion to Chase Elliott. Chase Elliott just took a leak. Chase Elliott just yawned. Chase Elliott just ran his fingers through his hair. Chase Elliott just turned the steering wheel nonstop. And I'm, I might be exaggerating. I might not. It felt like we were watching the hashtag Rolex 24 of Chase Elliott. And it wasn't his fault. I don't know the kid. I've got nothing against him. Truly, none of this had anything to do with him. He didn't go to NBC Sports and say, hey, why don't you all pretty much forget this is an IMSA race, disrespect massive numbers of the people involved in the race participating, the the lifers who will be here at every round, forget them, put your cameras on me, talk about me at all times. That's not what happened. So there's nothing negative to say about Chase. I'll tell you, to close here, during the stretches where we went from NBC Sports, big network NBC, or NBC Sports Network on cable, and went to the track pass streaming version where IMSA radio's audio is what was placed in front of the images on the screen. I don't know if I heard Chase Elliott's name mentioned more than once or twice, and it was for something related to on-track action or, hey, so-and-so's getting out of the car and Chase Elliott's getting in. So for the serving the international audience, and American as well, but the international audience, IMSA Radio, I would say, applied a coverage strategy that welcomed all without being out of skew towards any one element that might be tuning in just to watch one driver here or one driver there. So get the reasons why NBC Sports took the approach they did, but when you feel a little bit unwelcome watching your own favorite niche anorak-type sport in its big season opener, uh, I would not rate it as one that will stand out to me in a positive manner. Yeah, I can add one little bit of um, additional thing to that. Uh, as you, you know, consumers of social media uh, will obviously see, uh, in my case, some of our rival coverage uh, pop up on social media. And one actually struck me as being particularly noteworthy. Not exactly the same point as this, but it's another point worth making in terms of the level of respect being shown to the discipline. Uh, it popped up, and it. I've just got the headline up in front of me now. Magnussen, Ganassi, Daytona victory battle ended by puncture. And the opening paragraph says, Kevin Magnussen's chances of winning the 24 hours of Daytona came to an end when his Chip Ganassi racing Cadillac teammate, Ringer Van Zander, <laughs> picked up a puncture while within two seconds of the leader within the seven. I mean, uh, guys, uh, by the way, and I'm not going to give you the name of the writer for this, uh, but it is the very same writer, when working for a different publication, uh, wrote a not dissimilar story featuring Alonso's car taking pole at um, uh, the the Bond 24 Hours some years ago, and then expressing loudly uh, in the hearing of his uh, press room colleagues, um, and indeed, I believe, expressing himself on Twitter as well as to what effectively do these f***ing idiots um, wow! Think, yep. Uh, what they think they're talking about Jesus. when they're criticising me 
uh, to which I think my my response to his tweet was, those idiots are your readers and your customers, and they're telling you that you're doing it wrong. So here's the here's the news. If you want to be obsessive about an individual driver in a team sport, um, those drivers have opted to go into that team sport either because they want to or because the opportunities in the sport in which they compete as an individual driver are no longer available to them. And there are elements there with both Kevin Magnussen and with Chase Elliott, elective and otherwise. You respect the discipline. If you don't, you become a laughingstock. And that, I'm afraid, I read that story and I thought, how must everybody else involved in that team feel in reading that story? If I were Kevin Magnuson, I'd be embarrassed. Stop the trying to put Hello Magazine uh, with a tire at each corner. It's ridiculous. Okay. Yes, we get it. We we've probably read more of these textbooks than you have, Sunshine. That say putting a star driver's name in a headline will get you a few more clicks, but it's pathetic is the straight answer. I'm really sorry. I don't know the writer personally involved here. I've had one conversation with him ever. I don't have a particular opinion on his professionalism otherwise, but that's a ridiculous way to report that story right there. I believe that is insulting to his teammates. I actually think it's insulting to Kevin Magnuson. It belittles his efforts in that race by reporting with his name against an incident that he was in no way involved with other than he happens to be sharing the same car. Honestly, I just don't think there's a place for it. And I think that's the world, MP, that sort of gets us where we are with this NBC coverage. Um, I wish it was a surprise, but it sort of isn't. Wow, we got a good soapbox there, uh, Ryan. And I had to make a marker to to bleep the F-bomb there. Wow. (laughs) Um, So I said I wanted to close with your thoughts, Snoop Kishy Kish. So you tell us your thoughts on the broadcast and please don't get me even more hated by those at NBC sports with your response. Um, I don't really have much to add. Um, I, I didn't actually watch the NBC broadcast. Um, despite the fact that I do live in the United States, but you know, assert my fifth amendment right there. Um, the, the, the part that Graham was talking about is, you know, of course these, the Rolex 24 and Le Mans 24 hours sometimes attracts drivers outside of sports car racing. And in doing so, it attracts the media that t- typically doesn't cover sports car racing. And I, I don't know if I'm at the point in my journalistic career where I'm allowed to have gripes with other people. I don't think I am. But sometimes when you're listening to a press conference, and for example, the post-race press conference, it can sometimes be frustrating when Elio Castroneves or Alexander Rossi get asked, uh, like IndyCar related questions or, or, you know, the in-race press conferences with Jimmy Johnson are just sort of flooded with, you know, I don't want to say na- maybe NASCAR related questions, but questions not particularly related to the reason he's sitting in this press conference. So I understand what NBC has to do. You know, obviously they have to appeal to a much broader audience. Like it's a good broadcast for my dad to watch. Um, given his general knowledge of sports car racing isn't that great. But for someone like me who has to take, you know, vigorous notes throughout the race, the level of analysis you get at NBC doesn't pale in comparison to the level of analysis you can get elsewhere. 
And that's just without mentioning um, the commercial breaks. Uh, I wanted to mention there's a, a post on the IMSA Racing subreddit from a user called Dense27, who I guess calculated the amount of commercials throughout the race. If that's notes you want to take throughout the race, be my guest. That's amazing because I was actually hoping someone did that. (laughs) He calculated roughly seven hours of the race was commercials. And if you have track pass on NBC, which I think is like $2.99, then maybe it's not a problem. But you're not going to get commentary during those seven hours. You're not going to get the insight and the analysis for those seven hours. So if you're someone like us who is listening to this podcast, presumably follows sports car racing pretty closely, what are you going to get out of the NBC broadcast other than them explaining the difference between GT Le Mans and GTD every 45 minutes? Well, but Chase Elliott wasn't in GT Le Mans or GTD, so there'd be no reason <laughs> to explain those things. But I get your point. Now, it's a great yeah. it's a great point, though. And granted, you know, on the track pass, you do get the... Uh, uh imsa radio uh, broadcast so uh it isn't pure silence thankfully but um oh right yeah yeah the throughout time. the night right uh yes yeah well but okay. also yeah so anyways long story short yeah oh hey it's only 360 like one or two days till we get to find out what the next one's like so uh seven hours Oh, that's brutal. That is brutal. He even even broke down a number of ads per hour. So the the worst hour was hour four and hour 22, which were tied with eight ads. The least interrupted hour was hour number a couple at hour six. Eight that had four ads. Hour 12 had four ads. So anywhere between four and eight ads an hour. Wow. Wowza. If you can please, on our behalf, thank uh, that Redditor for that work. Seriously, thank. please thank them yes. on behalf Dense of the show. Dense 27 on yes. the IMSA Racing subreddit. Even, there's even like a chart, like an, uh, a Microsoft Excel chart. Ads during the green flag and ads during full course yellows. Can I admit one thing, too? I, I think I was the first to lampoon the Battery Daddy commercials. I looked in, it's a kind of a small drawer that we have in the kitchen, and I wouldn't need all the Battery Daddy, but I did look inside uh, yes, in that drawer yesterday, and I saw a lot of scattered and unkempt batteries. I'm thinking about it. I might buy one. Um, maybe that means they won't advertise next year. Is that true? Hopefully, I'm going to do that. Uh, there's <laughs> one other, or the, uh, John Sable's comment about Brian Till. I'm going to pass that on to Brian because you and I, John, had the same thought, and that's no disrespect to the any any of the other broadcasters and uh, color analyst Brian being kind of the former driver color, but also host guy. Um, just excellent and it really did stand out as excellent. So I'm glad that you uh, you caught that. I'm sure others did as well, John. There's one other thing that a couple of folks mentioned. Uh, I know that they aren't here in the main uh, broadcast piece as well, but there was the change over from NBCSN, and I realize for our international listeners this means nothing, but there was a change. I believe it was for the final hour of the race moved over to Big Network. So it opened on Big NBC, closed on Big NBC. There's a weird audio dynamic, guys, and I don't pretend to understand how. 
but we went from having NBCSN through the 23rd hour, starting the 24th or whatever the hell it was, um, and it was all normal. The folks talking to microphones, we could hear them clearly. There was ambient noise behind them, nothing to mention. Normal, didn't even think a thing about it. They switched over to the big network to close, and all of a sudden, the microphones seemingly were pulled down by about 50%. Either they were pulled down or the track audio was dialed up. I think it was just a case of the broadcaster's mics being turned down. But it was something that a number of people caught. I did as well, where you go from just changing channels in an instant, and you all of a sudden you're going, huh, what? And so here I am, like sounding like I'm deaf because I'm just winding up the volume not because I couldn't hear things in general. It's because somehow the broadcasters got very quiet. So, yeah, I don't know, man. It just seems like if we go back in time, maybe a little bit of a do-over would be uh, on the cards. All right, gents, we are at about a little bit past an hour and 20. We said we we're going to try and do about an hour and a half or so. Where do we go the next one category, maybe two before we close? And, yeah, uh, what do we do here? I think we're going to get into um, let's let's finish it off with the big uh, the big categories we've got in these questions, and we'll we we will get back and do another show later in the week, and we'll do a bit of the uh, the lucky dip if you like in the other categories. GTD Pro, we dealt with it a little bit on last week's show, but that was the big announcement coming into the Rolex Twenty Four that this would be the final season, and that was the final. Um, uh, GTLM class at the Rolex 24 hours. GTD Pro is coming for 2022. And we've got a whole range of questions here that will easily fill that 10 minutes. Uh, right turn lover again. Jacob Bain gets in. Mike Niedert gets in. Joshua Johnson uh, gets in. Doogie Davis, Nick Reed, Mitch Mortensen, and John Schultzer are the names that I'm pulling out from here. Eight uh, wide range of questions about this. Uh, right turn lover. Uh, says I summarised this to be GT3 spec Michelin tyres, old pro driver lineup. How does that differ to half the current GTD grid? Hey now, um, <laughs> ooh, can you talk about the Lexus elephant in the room? Lexus front in the room when it comes to GTD Pro. Um, Jacob Bay masks. So this GTD Pro thing is going online. That's nice, but uh, we all know how much Stefan Mattel likes full factory efforts and the way they shape their respective classes they compete in. Can you tell us what is Stefan's view on GTD Pro using his bread and child as a factory-based class and how it influences his IGTC series? Good point here. Could there be a press prospect there of Daytona or Sebring replacing Indy as his American round of IGTC run in a similar fashion to the Suzuka 10 Hours? Uh, let's deal with those first and we'll come to the other questions here um any prospect even on the far horizon of uh igtc uh double heading or, or being part of the uh, one of the imsa races in gtd pro marshall big tick uh i would love to figure out how the sro and the imsa uh would somehow work together on a type of event or similar at places owned by the IMSA uh, slash NASCAR under their lease. So if it's a significant amount of money paid for a track rental, do I think that might be a possibility? Sure. Any kind of blended effort or co-mingling, I would say that would be a bit of a stretch. 
the thing yeah. that I'm I'm curious to get some thoughts on from you to gents, it's on the who's going to subscribe and fill GTD Pro angle. We know we expect Corvette Racing to be there with GT GT3 versions of its C8Rs. We expect BMW to be there with its uh, new M4 GT3. We look, though, through the rest of the paddock, current paddock at least, with GTD, and say, huh, well, we love Paul Miller Racing, for example. They fund their program on their own. Uh, Am I saying any of the manufacturers involved in GTD are total separation of church and state and don't either give money or technical services or drivers or something at no cost to the teams. I'm not saying that there's certainly uh, a lot of entanglements there, but when it comes down to say a Paul Miller racing, that's Paul Miller choosing to do GTD and they are he and his businesses, his auto dealerships in particular, that's the financial engine behind them running GTD each year. Is there anything stopping Paul from saying, well, hey, got a car. Uh, We've got more or less our own budget. We can pick and choose what we want to do. Maybe let's go try GTD Pro. Uh, I'm not saying they would, offering no secret intel that I have. Just saying for the teams that are more self-funded compared to reliant upon am drivers gentleman gentlewoman drivers bringing a budget to participate are there any teams in particular full-timers obviously that stand out to either of you as hmm wonder if they might want to just go up and play with an all pro lineup as a non-factory deal similar to um any of the other teams that have done that in the past with say gt1 or gtlm uh, well, for me, I think you, you may have nailed it with Lamborghini. Um, I think there's an, a, a, a possibility we've got GRT looking to put a car in. They had a terrible uh, Rolex 24, by the way. Is that GRT um, Grasser Racing Team? It's the GRT Grasser uh, GRT Racing GRT Team, yes. Um, so they, uh, I think there could be something in this for Lamborghini, who do have a bit of a record for looking for ways in which to approach a relatively limited cost um, uh, full season efforts. That said, what we do know about the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship, it ain't cheap. Um, and GTD Pro is hardly going to be cheaper again, is it? Um, I wonder about Lexus. That, that could be an interesting one. Um, we'll come in a moment to the Corvette thing because there's a great question uh, from Nida next up on, uh, on the, uh, the Corvette thing. Beyond that, is it fair to say, MP, that we're looking for else might emerge that isn't on that current grid? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, that, well, obviously we're looking to see who all is going to identify themselves and, and step up in that regard, so I know that that would be pretty darn awesome. Ryan, are there any existing full-timers in GTD you'd look at? I don't know if it's a Scuderia Corsa or whomever where you think they might either step up and out of GTD into GTD Pro or add a new car to GTD Pro? Um, I mean, just I'm looking through the spotter's guide of the Rolex 24, and I don't, I mean, like maybe something like the Team Hardpoint EBM or Bamber's <laughs> connections to the Porsche factory. 
Um, maybe Turner Motorsports. Of course, I've been racing with BMW. Uh, well, 24 was their 400 race, 400th race with BMW. So is there a BMW connection for those guys? You mentioned Scuderia Corsa or, or AF Corsa, who ran the uh, the 21 GTD Ferrari. AF Corsa, of course, operates the Ferraris and the WEC. Could they run GT3s and GTD Pro? Maybe there's something there. You guys? Okay. The key, I'm just, I'm, you know, the key, the key here, I think the key here is this. Take a look at that entry list. Take a look at the driver lineups. Mm-hmm. Who on those driver lineups are paying for that car? Now, you've then got to ask yourself if that person is paying for that car and is removed from that um uh, from that that equation to make the car worthy in competitive terms of going to GTT Pro, is that car still being funded? And if not, who's paying that multi-million dollar uh, bill? I think once you start down that road and look at look car by car, how close is each lineup to a GTT Pro effort already, and what makes the difference? And if what is making the difference is the financial contribution made by, for instance, one driver, as in many cases it is. You've got to ask yourself, where is that multi-million dollar hole going to be filled? Who buy uh, to put in what will be, you know, not uh, one of the top two classes on the road? Uh, that That's my concern about, the, about this. Do I think they're going to get a worthwhile grid for it? I think they know they are. They clearly know more than we do about the current state of... Uh, debate about this MP, but I think anybody, I've seen a couple of people getting terribly excited about this uh, at frankly a fairly unrealistic level on social media, they're not going to get 10 um, GT3 marks uh, in GTD Pro. I think it would be a triumph if they got half of that, is the straight answer. An absolute triumph if they got half of that. Um, the, 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 the Ferrari thing is a great example. I'll tell you right now who won't be investing in it, and that's AF Corsa. Um, you know, and if uh, if AF course are going to show up and run a GTD Pro effort, sure as eggs are indeed the things that come out of the rear ends of chickens, um, they're going to have to find someone who's going to be paying for the full season driver lineup for those cars. Either that, or you're going to have to find someone who's pretty darn good um, that's got pretty darn large amounts of dollarage uh, to leverage with it. And I think we've got a lot to find out with this as we're coming forward. My final word on this one is I do wonder whether or not we might see one or two uh, efforts that it's a sort of stepping stone to where we're going to go in 2023 uh, in terms of the teams and in terms of manufacturers. That could be an area where there's short-term gain for GTD Pro. And then we wait and see what the new era in 2023 brings us in terms of the depth of the grid for the overall win, because that is going to be the fundamental change of the shape of sports car racing, particularly at the biggest races in a couple of years' time. Baby chickens. Can I pose um, Don't those come out of the back of chickens? (laughs) Sorry. Can I pose a question to you two? Jesus. Uh, yes, uh, Sir Lord, uh, Emperor of the Weekend Sports Cars and Chairman of the LMP3 board, Ryan Kish. We're ending the one episode where we are your pets. You own the show. You're in charge. So you do as you damn please. We take instructions from you today. Are we more likely in GTD Pro? Are we more likely to see 
the full factory lineups that are present in GTLM right now, or are we more likely to see the lineups like the 79 WeatherTech Porsche had with Cooper McNeil with WeatherTech backing paired with factory drivers in GTD Pro? I would have to think we would see few of the 79 Porsche type lineup with one Pro, one Am, because I know we're just talking about Daytona that just happened where there were more than two drivers, but when we get to the full season of regular races, non-endurance races, it's going to be Cooper and a rotating cast of Porsche factory pros. So what we will have for the remainder of the year in GTLM at those standard events is GTD lineup in GTLM. So I would say since they're creating GTD Pro next year, it would be very strange for someone to take a GTD lineup and then go up and really get their behinds kicked by the Pure Factory lineups in most cases. So not saying it can't or won't happen, but I would think it might be in the minority because there's already a class where that's the actual design to have that pro-am lineup. I think okay. the thing is that's... you can like you can look at look at two classes here, Ryan. The first is GTLM, mm. and the other one is the current GTD. Mm. Um, what has always struck me as significant about the even the stretch entries you get for something like the Rolex Twenty Four in the modern era of GTD um, for IMSA is GTLM with the in its pomp is two car fully funded factory back teams. GTD, for the most part, is single car entries. Right. That's what we've seen. Now, yes, we've seen Myershank Racing with a couple of orbit separately funded uh, uh, Acuras. We've got, I think we, I think I'm right. Do we only have two two car GTD entries this 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 uh, time around? There was the Vassar Sullivan Lexus entries and the GRT Lamborghinis. I think they were the only two car teams yes. in GTD. Yes. Now, here's the point. You would expect, wouldn't you, that GTD Pro would aspire to be at the level, i.e. two car teams fully factory backed, or at least with significant factory backing, um, which means that you're looking rather more towards the kind of organizations that ran GTLM than the right. ones that run GTD, because not only are you taking a step forward from Pro-Am to full Pro, you would expect if you're a factory backed team, you're going to want more than one car. Or maybe you go for multiple customer cars, but you still come back round to that same question, which, by the way, is exactly the same question that faces the, the DTM in their attempt to reinvigorate themselves. Who is paying the piper? Um, you know, it's great having two and three uh, driver lineups of these absolutely awesome talents. But at some point, someone's going to pay for the car, pay for the crew, pay for the drivers, pay for the logistics, you know. GTD, we go back to, you know, your and my uh, colleague Stephen Kilby's piece, uh, which feels like about a year ago now. Even in the current GTD, even without full factory talent, $5.4 million for a single GTD car for a full IMSA season. Now, it's going to be more than that for a GTD pro car because you've got three drivers that presumably want to be paid. And if you're adding into that equation the fact that it's a second car, you are into 
a very large number indeed for a class that is not going to win the race. 5.4s, if someone quoted that to Stephen, it was, that's an outlier. Uh, it has certainly crept up to four-ish, if not a little bit over four for some. Uh, there are some others who are quoting full season for this season uh, below three. Not a lot below three, but um, mm-hmm. bottom line is it's become exceptionally expensive. I know that today's, call it average, GTD budget is level, if not slightly exceeding what a full season Daytona prototype budget was at mm-hmm. the end of the DP era before DPIs took over. So that to me is a bit sobering as well. When we think of a purebred fully custom prototype where the bits and pieces on it are thought of as consumables, just about everything barring the, uh, the, whether it's a carbon tub or a steel tube frame one in this case, that's about the only non-readily replaceable thing. Just about everything else is thought of as a bit of a lower mileage, high consumption item that factors into an expansive budget. Crazy to think that for a GT car, GTD slash GT3 at that, where, of course, there are consumables on it, but it's really not in the same jewel-like state where things have a very finite lifetime crazy to think that that budget is where uh dps were here five years ago so no doubt it has crept up so yeah not necessarily good uh gents any closing shots before we go graham you you take us home each time should we uh thank our lord and owner here uh as i think our owner since we're his pets uh, but indeed, and I'm looking forward to the emancipation, Lincoln-like emancipation that we'll get at the end of this show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're going to start the second part of the Week in Sports Cars this week, uh, if I might beg your indulgence, Ryan, um, with uh, Matt Niedert's question about can Corvette build a GT3, and there's, there's some very good points made in that. So we're going to kick that uh, the second part of this off, and we hope to record that in just a couple of days. But I'm going to thank, first and foremost... Uh, Ryan Kish for his fantastic efforts in being the least wrong of all three of us um, in his predictions uh, for the Rolex 24. And again, thanks, Ryan, for you do in uh, bringing order to the uh, vast number of questions. I literally have just finished half the sheets of questions in getting as far as we've done uh, for this show. I'm going to thank again, Cooper Tyres, of course, for their continuing backing for Marshall Pruitt Podcast and Weekend Sports Cars. I'm going to thank uh, the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. Particular thanks, of course, to um, Marshall Pruitt. I forgot your name for a moment Stop there. Stop it. Marshall, Stop but, it. Uh, you are the biggest loser with a lot of us. Um, but uh, in particular, for joke, your efforts. Is that a fat joke, by the way? Is that another fat no, joke? No, God, no. No, okay. no, God, I wouldn't do that. No, you're far too big and scary. Um, the uh, particular thanks, though, for sitting through the Chase Elliott show um, for all those hours. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to thank myself because that would be self-indulgent, but uh, I'm going to just pat myself on the back a little bit for doing this one. Um, that was the week in sports cars. We were your cast of three rather than thousands. Uh, we'll get back, we hope, with a part two for this to complete as many of this astonishing number of questions as we possibly can. Good night.